Then we're going to get into Colossians tonight. Why are we going through books like this? Because faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And I've decided years ago, particularly in the last six, seven years, it just hit me stronger than ever, that I'm going to be a teacher more than anything. I think I'm a treacher. I, I treach. But here's the deal. Because there's such a flood of lies coming against our culture, hitting our minds every day. There's only one answer to it. Jesus said, thy word is truth. The only solution to a lie is the truth. And there is a the truth, an ultimate truth, an absolute truth. So we're just going to wash our minds in the word of God. And so let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. Lord, that your people desperately need. I need it. We need it. Lord, speak to us tonight. Renew our minds. Renew our soul. Erase the old ways of thinking and replace them with new ways of thinking. Heal inner memories. Heal inner woundings. Reach into our soul with the scalpel of the word of God and heal and bind us up and make us whole by your truth. Now will you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Let's look at Colossians now. It's good to see all of you here. And um, Christ in Colossians part two, the colossal Christ of Colossians. Now, last time we saw that Paul was initially prodded to pen his epistle to the Colossians because of the threat of the false teaching of Gnosticism. Now, I told you that Gnosticism did what all cults do. Gnosticism de-deified Jesus. Any cult or any false teaching that the devil hatches, and he hatches all false teaching, he is the force behind it, will marginalize Jesus. It will attack the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the deity of Christ, who he really was. The reason I went to Colossians from 2 Peter and Jude is because 2 Peter, Jude, and Colossians are all answering false teaching. So to do it, they're building up Jesus, and nobody does it better than Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Colossians. So we're going to see in the next few weeks who Jesus Christ really is, and it's, it's powerful stuff. So uh, amen. We also saw Paul's passion for people. He loved people. He just loved people, had a passion for them. And because he had a passion for people, he had a passion for prayer to pray for people. He was always praying for people. And then he had a passion for principle. Let me tell you something. If you're a believer walking in the Word and love the Lord, you're going to be a person of principle. So while the church is... Uh, growing in Christ, the world is slipping away from being a principled world. But God's people are principled. They have scruples. They have morals. They have things that matter, that are right and wrong, good and bad, light and dark. So we're going to see he had a passion for principle. Now this time, we're first going to look at Paul's passion for progress. How many of you like progress? I got to have it. Progress. And we're going to see his passion for preachers, too. He loved preachers because he knew what it was like to be in their shoes because he were one, was one. 
I just want to see if anybody was listening. Two people corrected me right up here. No. And he had a passion for perspective. I'm going to show you what I mean by that in just a minute. But first, let me wrap up his passion for principle. Paul had a favorite trilogy of words, and they were faith, hope, and love. If you read the epistles, you're going to see him saying over and over again, faith, hope, and love. His favorite trilogy of words. He loved those words. Now, we saw last time that we all have faith, and we use faith every day in many different ways. You use faith to get here. You believe when you got in your car, it was going to start. You don't know how, but you knew that it would. You believed that it would. You had faith. And you have faith that as you sit here, your refrigerator is running. At least most of you do. And that the electricity will flow to our various utensils and light sockets. We have faith. We don't stop and think about it, but we're exercising faith because you actually put your life in a position of peril often without thinking about it by faith. You get on a jet. My problem is I think about it. But most of you get on a jet and you don't think about it. You just believe it's going to take off, that it's going to fly through the air like a bird, and that it's going to land and get you there. You have faith in the pilot, faith in whoever built the plane. My problem is I don't. <laughs> I want to be in the cockpit. But that's my control issues. Now, what transforms our mundane faith into saving faith is its object, period. The Bible says, read it with me, everybody, look unto me and be saved. What are we to do? Look, look unto me and be saved. So faith is operating in our life all the time, but it's where we place the faith that matters. And when you place it by looking up at Jesus, he says it saves you. Faith focused on him is saving faith. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's the verse that saved Charles Spurgeon. That one right there. Now, Hebrews 12, 2 exhorts us. Read it with me. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How are we to live our Christian lives? First three words. Read it again. Looking unto Jesus. He says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So when you're having a rough day, look up. When you're experiencing doubt, look up. When you're struggling with something, look up. Don't look around. Don't look down. Look up. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, the only saving faith is the faith that's placed in Christ Jesus. That's it. No other object will save you. You can't hug a tree and get saved. You can't believe in any other God and get saved. You can't trust anything else to save you. Looking to him is the faith that saves, and that was Paul's mantra. We are saved by faith through grace, period. Not of any works of our own, lest we go out and boast about it and say it was what I did that saved me. No, not by any of our own works, but grace through faith, period, saves. Now, Paul next mentions our love. He deals with faith first, then love. He says in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Now, I want to tell you something. Loving people is not easy. Anybody in here think loving people is easy? Can I meet you afterwards? 
Maybe you can lay hands on the rest of us because we find that there's unlovable, don't we? And guess what? You don't have to like somebody to, to love them. Isn't that good news? Because we can't like everybody. We can love everybody. But loving the way he says right here, love for how many saints? All saints. Well, what does that mean? That includes brother backbiter. That includes sister axe grinder. That includes brother tongue wagger. And that includes sister tattletale. That includes those people that you've got nothing in common with. You get around them, and there is nothing to talk about, but you're supposed to love them. How in the world do you do that? Can I tell you? It's impossible unless God does it through you. Agape love is love by choice. Did you know that? See, in our culture, we've been taught if you feel it, then you love. And if you don't feel it anymore, you divorce, you walk away, you call it a day because you don't feel it anymore because we have put a huge premium on feelings when, in fact, love is not a feeling. Well, that's not what I was taught, Pastor Jeff. Well, you were taught wrong, and so was I. Pop music doesn't tell us the truth. Have you noticed the pop music singers, they're always divorcing and remarrying and divorcing. If they understood love, they'd stick. Love, yes, it can be a feeling, but it's also a choice. Agape is a choice. God so agape the world that he gave when we were spitting in his face. He gave. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. How did God do that? Agape love. He said, I want you to love all the saints. I want you to love the imperfect imper ones, the weak ones, the ones that are totally unlike you. You don't have to run with them. You don't have to go do things with them. You don't have to agree with everything they say or do. Their lifestyle may vex you. Something about them may grieve you. But he says, love them. Put on love as the children of God. Put it on. Dress yourself in it. It's a choice every day. It's hard to imagine, but guess what? Jesus loved Pilate as much as he loved Peter. He loved his brother James, his bro James, his brother James, as much as he loved his disciple James. He loved Saul as much as he loved Simon. And are you ready for this? He loved Judas as much as he loved John. He was supernatural. He had a love we cannot comprehend. We cannot wrap our minds around it. If we could step into his sandals for one hour, it would blow our minds the way he viewed people. There was no prejudice, no dislike, no negative feelings, no revulsion, no personality clashes, none of that. When he looked at Judas, who he knew was going to betray him with a kiss, he loved him as much as John, who leaned on his chest and said, who's going to betray you? It was equal. How do you do that? You're God. He was God. Jesus was God. And that Jesus lives in us. And then he says, now, since I'm living in you, let me out and love one another. Love all the saints. This incredible agape love must flow from a spirit, it's got to, that is utterly yielded to God and from a soul that has spent much time in the Word and in prayer. I hope you're praying and I hope you're in the Word all the time.
I could not make it in this world without the Word, without prayer, and without the Holy Ghost in me. This is one battleground, folks. And there's no way we can get up any given day and assume that we're going to go out and just have a great day without the blessing of God. We need His strength. We need His grace. We need His love. We need His power. We need His presence. We're supposed to get up every morning and get dressed in two ways. Get your clothes on and then put on Jesus. Get full of the Holy Spirit. Get in that Word. Guard your mind because you will be attacked. This kind of love is God's kind of love, agape. Now, I want you to notice the order that Paul uses here. He deals first with faith, then love, then he deals with hope. That order, faith, love, hope. Faith comes first because guess why? Faith has to do with the content of our salvation. Without faith, there is no salvation. Our faith is in Christ Jesus. Faith has to do with the bedrock certainties of salvation purchased for us at Calvary. Faith is the content, the content, the starting point of our salvation. Faith is what links us to the Word of God, to the work of Christ, and to the witness of the Spirit. Without first exercising faith, nothing else of heaven will ever be ours. It all begins with faith. How do I know the love of God? Faith. How did I get saved? Faith. How do I open up the Bible and receive anything? Faith. Everything begins in the Christian life with faith. Anything you've got tonight in Christ came to you via faith. Love comes next. Where faith has to do with the content of our salvation. Love has to do with the character of our salvation. Now think with me a minute. Love present in our lives is the evidence and the mark of the genuineness of our salvation. That's what the Bible says. It is not how many gifts are you flowing in. Listen, gifts are sown, fruit is grown. Gifts are sown, fruit is grown. I've known some mighty gifted people who were mighty nutty didn't have much fruit because they leaned on their gifts to get them where they wanted to go instead of allowing the Holy Ghost to bring forth fruit in their life. But let me tell you something. Your gift will get you way up here, but your character will keep you way up here. Without character, you won't be able to stay where your gift takes you. It's just a fact. I've known very gifted people who could not stay there, could not walk the walk, ended up crashing and burning because of character or a lack thereof. Now, love is the mark of the true Christian. Not saying you love perfectly, not saying that you, you know, you've got it all together and you're loving everybody and you never struggle with it, but you're loving sincerely. That is, you're growing in love. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. And if you, know, if you take the word love, it encapsulates all the other fruits of the Spirit. Love is all the other fruits wrapped up into one. Jesus said by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you are gifted. Is that what he said? 
Oh, I'm sorry. By this all that will know that you're my disciples, if you have a huge building, lots of money, driving a Rolls Royce. No. If you have what? Love. I don't know where we got the idea that money or stuff reveals the level of your faith. That's not in my New Testament. Here's what reveals the level of your faith. If you have love for one another, if you're bringing forth fruit. Character. Ooh, it's quiet in here. You could hear a pin drop on a shag carpet. I can hear the wheels rolling, but it's true, isn't it? Now watch. Hope comes after faith, and it comes after love. Because of the hope, he says, which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Now look at the word hope. I love hope. I love hope. I thank God for hope. Let me tell you something about you and hope. You can live without food for a while. You can live in the street for a while. But you can't live long without hope. Hope is the oxygen of the soul. Hope. Because hope means I'm waking up with something to look forward to. Hope means I'm excited about my future. Where faith has to do with the content of our salvation... And love with the character of our salvation, hope has to do with the consummation of our salvation. Because what is your hope looking to? What did he say? Your hope is looking to what is laid up for you in heaven. How many of you know that you are going to heaven one day? Uh, come on, are, do you kind of think so? Are, are you going to heaven someday? Some of you are going, well, I hope so. That's not the kind of hope I'm talking about. Did you know that Bible hope is not a hope so, maybe so, perhaps so, if so. Hope so, or hope in the Bible is a no so. No so hope. He says, here's what, the, the hope of the believer is not, well, I hope I get better, I hope I make more money, or I hope this, hope that. Hope for the believer is focused on what is laid up for you in heaven. That's what Bible hope is. Now, Bible hope is not the same as the world's kind of hope. If we were to ask somebody, are you saved? And they replied, well, I hope so. Turn to your neighbor and say to them, are you saved? Now, now what would you think if they turned to you and said, gee, you know, I hope so. Would you want to pray with them? We wouldn't be very impressed with their faith, would we? But that's the world's definition of hope. It's iffy. It's wishy-washy. It's maybe so, perhaps so kind of hope. But no, Bible hope is stronger than that. It is solid. It is unshakable. It is steady. It is unyielding. Because it is based in eternal truth. Oh, I love the Bible. I love the Bible. Let me tell you why. Because right here, we have a treasure chest. And, and it's a blank check. And God says, this book, 66 books that I put together through many, many different authors through many centuries who all agree together, all unified in what they wrote, though they didn't know each other, most of them. And they wrote down exceedingly great and precious promises through which we become partakers of the divine nature. 
So we are to lay hold of the promises of God. And this Bible tells me that when I put my faith on the object named Jesus Christ, that he saved me and I was delivered from death to life, from lost to found, from blind to seeing. And when that happened, it ignited in me now a hope that lives and carries me through hell and back every day of my life. I can walk through the deepest valley. I can go through the hottest fire. And this hope remains intact. Why? Because it's not the promise of a man. It's not the promise of a woman. It is the promise of the everlasting eternal God that I'm going to heaven. I'm about to preach. Hear me, everybody, so that we wake up and we go, you know what? I'm saved. Hallelujah. If you can't thank God for anything else, thank him. Start right there. Lord, thank you that I'm saved. I may not have a job, but I'm saved. I may not have enough money, but I'm saved. I may be in a marital struggle, but I'm saved. I may have been watching my kids go crazy, but I'm saved. And I'm going to start right there and praise you that I'm saved. And I'm going to work up the anointing and stir up the gift of God that's in me because... Within me is the one who promised that one day I'm going to heaven. And as far as he's concerned, I'm seated right now in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. It's done. It's finished. Signed, sealed, delivered. That's Bible hope. Our hope is treasured up in heaven. Hope looks ahead. Hope has to do with the future. Our hope is guaranteed by God himself in his infallible word. Bible hope says Jesus is coming soon. There is a place built for me in glory. One day soon I will see the one who died for me. Bible hope manifests itself in a confident expectation of good in regards to the future. Faith believes it. Faith believes it, but then hope expects it. Faith lays hold of it. But then hope expects it. It's on the way. It's on. The, how do you know? Because I've got hope. You can't get any better than this. Plato won't get you here. Aristotle won't get you here. Nietzsche won't get you here. No other world philosopher will get you here. They'll confuse you. They'll depress you. They'll oppress you. But only Jesus will get you here. All right. I mean, that's a good place to give the Lord a hand. I just, I feel stirred about that. Now, next, we find Paul's passion for progress. Look what he says in verse 6, which has come to you. He's talking about the gospel. The gospel has come to you as it has also in all the world, and it's bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Now here he's bragging on the power of the gospel to progress, to grow legs and run. He's talking about the gospel spreading. Notice that the great apostle Paul has a world vision. What did he say? It's also, where is it going? Which has come to you as it is also where? Read it. In all the world. He didn't just have a local vision. He had a world vision. He was a Jew by birth. He was raised in a Greek city. And he was a Roman citizen. 
His perceptive mind knew that neither Jewish light, that is the Old Testament, nor Greek logic, nor Roman law would meet the needs of the human heart, but the gospel could. And the gospel does. While Paul was writing the Colossians, the gospel was rapidly taking root. Right as he was writing, chained to a Roman soldier, the gospel was already beginning to travel around the world. There was already an eastward march of gospel preachers to Babylon, and they moved on to India, and they were moving into the Far East. And Paul himself, out of his own mouth, let us know that his sights were on Spain. He saw the gospel going to the entire world. Now, can I tell you that a world vision is gripping my heart? We've had a door open to us, a great and effectual door, and there are many adversaries. We've had a door open to us, and that is we're going to be able to go video to the whole world. I'm starting to think in terms of millions of people, no longer hundreds of thousands or thousands. I'm thinking in terms of millions because millions need to hear it. I want us to be heard by people who are under the bondage of Islam. I want people to hear us who are under the bondage of totalitarian despots. I want people to hear us where a human being preaching the gospel could never go. We're going to go. I want people who have never heard the name of Jesus to hear it through our church and be saved. That's what I want. And that was what Paul had in his heart. He had a world vision. Paul had already preached from Jerusalem to modern Yugoslavia. Did you know that? And he wasn't in a Corvette. He did not have a Beamer. He did not have a car. But he traveled 1,500 miles preaching the gospel under all kinds of negative circumstances. Persecutions, beatings, rejection, false accusation, imprisonment. But he kept on going, and he kept on going. Africa, Asia, Europe, all of them were being reached by the gospel. This incredible man, 1,500 miles on foot. Try walking it sometime. Paul's philosophy was this, reach the world. Go and go and go. Reach the world. If the devil attacks you, bind him and keep on going. If people attack you, chalk it up and keep on going. As long as your heart is beating and your legs can walk and your eyes can see and you can do it, do it. He knew the Holy Spirit was the Lord of the harvest. So Paul prophetically, and I love this, and this is my word thing. You know I like words, but I notice this. He used the present tense in a verb in Romans 10, 18 when he wrote these words. Look at these words. Their sound talking about gospel preachers, is come to you, he says to the Romans, as it is in all the world. But guess what? When he wrote that, that wasn't true yet. Even though global evangelism was yet in its infancy, he spoke of what had not yet come as though it had. He knew the gospel was going to cover the whole world, so he just wrote it in the present tense. He said, it's already in all the world. Even though it wasn't yet, he knew that it would. I love that. Now, next, Paul brags on Epaphras, the pastor of the Colossian church, who was under such attack. 
and his people were under attack by this cult. He wrote and he bragged about Epaphras. And he says this in verse 7 and 8. He says, as, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras went to Paul and said, man, these people love each other. These people are walking in love, walking in grace, walking in faith. And Paul said, that really blessed me. And I want you to know, he's my dear brother in the work of Christ. Paul was very wise. He knew that the cult leaders would be busy blackening Epaphras' name and taking advantage of his absence. He knew when he went and traveled a thousand miles at least to get to Paul and tell him what was going on and get an answer for these cults. He knew that while he was gone, these cult teachers would attack Epaphras, criticize him, undermine him, and try to destroy his reputation with the people he was pastoring. And as is always the case, there would be those willing enough to listen to both their slanders and their cultic teaching. I think one of the sad facts of life is that people will hear a thing and never get the other side. The Bible says if you hear a thing and you don't get the other side, it's a folly and a shame to you. There are people that hear things and they'll run with it and just say, well, it must be the truth, and it's not necessarily the truth at all. Or there may be partial truth, partial not truth. But here, Paul was anticipating these false teachers were going to run his man down. So in the letter he sends back, he builds him up. He said, he's, he's, my, he's my boy. He's my man. He's my pastor. And me and him, we're fellow servants. And you could not get a higher recommendation or seal of approval in that day than Paul's. So Paul gave the embattled pastor his word of support and commendation. And now next, Paul bursts into prayer. You've got to hear this prayer. He prays one of the most powerful prayers in the whole Bible. I want you to read it with me in verse 9, can you? For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Would anybody here like that on your life? You know, there have been times as a pastor when I couldn't think of what to pray for you, and I just opened up that verse, and I prayed that verse over you. You can't pray better than the Word of God. Let's look at that prayer. And, you know, we got to smile here because, remember, he was chained to a Roman soldier. That Roman soldier was dragged into so many prayer meetings because he's chained to God's man. So he got forced to be in some powerful prayer. Can you imagine standing there, a Roman soldier, and here's this, this, this mighty apostle? Lord, open up their minds. Open up their understanding. Bless them. Anoint them. Save them. Secure them. Thank you, God. They're seated in heavenly places in Christ. Can you imagine what he was experiencing? He had to get saved. And if he didn't get saved, he's really got no excuse when he meets the judge. Now, Paul prays first for their spiritual vision. He wants the Colossian Christians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. What a powerful prayer. He prayed also for their spiritual vitality, and he prayed for their spiritual victory. Now, listen carefully. Since the Gnostic cult was attacking their minds, they needed knowledge and understanding, and they needed wisdom because their minds were under attack. Now, let me tell you about you and me. 
Satan always goes after your mind. Let me tell you about God. God goes after your heart. But Satan goes after your mind. Ever since the fall, the mind of man has been particularly susceptible to Satan's deceptions. How did he attack Eve? He came up to her and he said, has God said? He got her doubting. Are you sure God said it? How do you know God said it? All they had to remember was one verse in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat that tree. <laughs> but he said, how do you know God said it? You sure God said it? You're not sure God said it. God didn't really mean it. Then he attacked God's character. He was, he's holding back from you, Eve. And he began to work against her thoughts. And that's the way he attacks you and me in our minds every single time. Now, so Paul prays, knowing their minds are under attack from false teaching, he prays that truth would hold sway over deception. The Gnostics claim to have a special or superior kind of knowledge. So Paul was scornful of this. He said, I know that's not true because our wisdom is in Christ. The knowledge Paul mentions in praying for the Christians means precise. The word is epigenosis. It means precise or additional knowledge, true knowledge, exact knowledge, God's knowledge. He wanted them filled with a knowledge of God's will. So he prayed for them. And then when he said, I want you to have wisdom and spiritual understanding, the word wisdom is Sophia. He prays for Sophia, for wisdom for them which has to do with cleverness and skill and the right application of knowledge. Meaning, it's one thing to have knowledge, it's another thing to know how to use that knowledge. Knowledge is knowledge, but wisdom shows you how to use the knowledge you have accurately. It's possible to have knowledge without wisdom. To be a walking encyclopedia of Bible facts, yet have no wisdom as to how to apply them. Smart people do stupid things all the time. You can have a high IQ and live like a fool. You know what we need right now, church? We need wisdom. Sophia, wisdom. We need the wisdom of God. The need of the hour is for wisdom. I, I, if, if I could pray two things for the church in America right now, here's what I pray. Wisdom and discernment. Wisdom and discernment. Wisdom enables us to use knowledge accurately. The spiritual understanding that he prayed for has to do with discernment. It has, it's the ability to look at things critically and objectively and discern the true from the false. And here's where the church is in real trouble. Because almost every week we read about some major compromise the church has made with the world and they've thrown the Bible out the window. And they're showing that their eye has been blinded. In the Bible, it talks about, at one point, the children of Israel got attacked by another tribe. And the tribe said, we'll let you go if we can cut a deal with you. And they said, what deal do you want to cut with us? And they said, we're going to put out the right eye of every man among you. This is Old Testament days, brutal days. We're going to we'll put out the right eye of every one of your men. And if we can put out the right eye of every one of your men, we will not kill you or your wives or your children. We'll spare you, but we're going to have to take the right eye. Now, why'd they want the right eye? Because the right eye was the eye of battle. 
The right eye was the eye that you looked through when you drew that bow and shot the arrow. The right eye was the eye you looked around your shield with. So the right eye was the eye of warfare. It was the eye that you used to spot the enemy and take him down. Now, who do you think was behind their request to take Israel's right eye? Satan. Now, the Old Testament is a physical illustration of spiritual truth. What do you think Satan wants out of us? He wants to put out the right eye of battle, the right eye of discernment, where we can't tell right from wrong, good from bad, light from dark, where we're confused. Because if he can get our right eye, then we are disabled. We can't fight. We won't call a devil a devil. We won't call wrong wrong. We're blind. And if we can't battle, the devil's not worried about the church. And I'm going to tell you something. Right now, there's a lot of churches losing their right eye. There's a lot of Christians losing their right eye. And you know how you keep that right eye from being taken away from you in spiritual battle? You say, this is God's word and I will never let it go. This is the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And watch this now. I have a covenant with this book. And the God who gave us this book. My covenant is this. Lord, thy word is truth. And let God be true and every man a liar. I don't care what the culture tells me is right or wrong. They're wrong. The majority is wrong all the time. Always have been, always will be. No, no, I've got a covenant with the Word of God. And I don't care what I feel, what I see, what I sense, what I want. If the Bible tells me something different, I submit to the Word. That way, my right eye is 20-20. And I will spot a devil. And I will be able to battle. But God help the church that decides to throw this out. The minute they do, their right eye has been taken out by the enemy. There are no threat to hell anymore. There has rarely been a time when the church seemed to be so lacking in discernment, yet in such desperate need of it. The Colossians were in grave danger of deception through clever error. So Paul prayed like Elisha did for his frightened servant. Remember that story? They're surrounded by the enemy. And little Gehazi walked out early in the morning, following Elisha around. He was his servant. He looked and he saw the armies of Elisha surrounding them, filling the mountains with chariots and horses and army uh, personnel. And he said, oh, no, what are we going to do? And Elisha just prayed, Lord, open there, open his eyes. Just open his eyes so that he can see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw in the spirit and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He saw, we're not the defeated ones. We are the ones who are winning. We're not overcome. We're the overcomers. We're not the ones who have been triumphed against. We are the ones who are going to triumph over the enemy. Greater is he that is for us than he that is in the world. We're not the losers. We're the winners. But until God opened his eyes, he couldn't see it. We need our eyes open, don't we? Amen. Amen. Now he prays next for spiritual vitality, and we're coming to a close here. Spiritual vitality. Verse 10, he says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now the word walk is very important. He uses the word walk that refers to the outward life that men see. 
If the outward life is pleasing to God, it'll be beyond criticism by men. Did you catch that? If you're living like you ought to before the Lord, men won't be able to find anything to say against you unless they're lying. So he says that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Walk, walk. The outward life that men see may be worthy of the Lord. We should resolve that our every step be pleasing to the Lord. As a matter of fact, the phrase fully pleasing to him carries the idea of, quote, meeting all his wishes. Meeting all the wishes of the Lord. Summarizing, Paul prays for their spiritual vision, their spiritual vitality, and next and finally he prays for their spiritual victory. Strengthen, read it with me in verse 11. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with what? How in the world can you have joy with long-suffering? You know what long-suffering is? When you've been suffering long. <laughs> isn't, isn't the Bible complicated? You know what testimony is, don't you? It's when you've had a test and done some moaning. Paul wants us to know that all of God's boundless, mighty resources are at our disposal in our battle with Satan's forces. We are not left to ourselves, thank God. He did not leave us to shoot a squirt gun at the sun. On the contrary, he himself lives within each blood-bought believer to release all of his own boundless resources so that we can serve him as he wants to be served. Greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. Say it with me, if God be for us. Let's try it again. If God be for us, who can be against us? Give him a hand of praise tonight. Now notice carefully the connection between God's power and our ability to exercise patience and long-suffering with joy. Not only can we be patient, but we can do it with joy. When we think of patience and trials, who do you think of? Job. For all patience and long-suffering, he says. But when we think of patience and long-suffering with joy, we think of Jesus. Job had patience, but he didn't have any joy. But Jesus had joy in his suffering. Think about this. Jesus' legacy to us as his children is joy. Look what Jesus said. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be partial, full. And again, he said, therefore you now have sorrow, but guess what? I'm going to see you again and your heart will rejoice and your no one will take from you. It is joy, writes John Phillips, which enables us to trace the rainbow through the rain and that enabled martyrs to sing in the midst of the flames that engulf them. Joy is not mere happiness. Happiness depends on a happening. Joy, on the other hand, flows from God's throne. It's the second fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. So Paul prayed. Let's stand together, can we? How many of you got joy tonight? Amen? So Paul prayed for this, 
And remember this. He prayed for those Colossians under attack. I pray for your vision. I pray for your vitality. I pray for your victory. Once these things fill us with the fragrance and the fruitfulness of the very life of Christ, I guarantee you the devil, devil is robbed of all his power. Let me pray for you, Father. I thank you for vision for everyone in this sanctuary and everyone listening by radio across the country. I pray for vision that we would see as you see. And Lord, we thank you for vitality. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, for blessing us, helping us, ministering to us. And thank you for victory in Jesus. So raise your hands, saints of God, and say, Lord, I receive that vision, and I receive that vitality, and I receive that victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Next time, more than a carpenter. Give him a hand. Go ahead, Catherine. Amen. That was great. We want to remind everybody that we have pre-service prayer.